This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, April 15th, 2023. Dornall, how was your week? Hey, it's been a glorious week. I had a great Easter. How about you? Oh, I had an awesome Easter. Uh, I got to get together once again with my family, um, which I always love. Um, as I have mentioned many times before, I've got a great family. And, um, you know, we got together. We had Easter meal and got a, my niece and nephew from who were in college in Louisiana flew in and uh, brought a couple of friends with them and uh, all oh, that's my, a treat. yeah all, all of my other relatives who were scattered far and wide across uh, the state came in and it was just a big old uh, Big old grand party to see everybody. Oh, that's amazing. Um, mine was mine was exciting for different reasons. Uh, it was my first time attending an Easter vigil, uh, so I was very tired on Easter Day itself. Uh, that's that's where we uh, we hang out at church for a few hours leading up to midnight on Saturday night, and then when it becomes Sunday, the uh, lights flip on and and we have a wonderful service celebrating uh, the resurrection so uh, that was cool that was really cool really special for me um in other news i'm just dealing with the old homeowner woes and i won't go into any more details on that that's just uh, another week in the life um i don't talk too much about personal stuff here but uh uh, most people listening know I've, I've recently been engaged. We've uh, things are moving fast. We're making plans, and we've set a date. So uh, everything's really good here. And round of applause at home, everybody. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly what the response to uh, "we've set a date" is supposed to be, but uh, I don't I'm know. Really tired, and that's all I could think of. <laughs> yeah, well done. <laughs> Yeah, good job. You're winning at life. Yes. <laughs> uh, is that so a thing, uh, winning at life now. It it's it is possible to win at life. Although uh, the older I get, the more I think it's not exactly what we are led to believe that it is. Um, this is true. Uh, uh, take uh, let's take a good famous example for once. Um, I think uh, I think Tom Brady. You could say he's winning at life. Uh, greatest quarterback to ever play in the NFL. Uh, tons of awards, uh, many Super Bowl rings. Um, you know, marries a supermodel. You know, turns out the supermodel's a witch, and uh, you know, I think they're split at this point. Uh, so he he was winning at life from one prism, but then you look at it from another perspective, and you don't know. So who knows? I feel like I'm winning at life, though. Oh, uh, I could go off on a tangent here, but I don't want to go off on a tangent. <laughs> I want to stay on, stay on, let's, stay on track here. 
let's stay on target. Everybody listening live, we uh, I I got a busy day today, and we've got a couple things that we really want to talk about. Uh, so we oh. want to get to those things. I have a little thing I want to talk about first, though. I love I'm hearing kind about of annoyed. Annoyed. <laughs> um. So there's a new trailer dropped this week. <laughs> a trailer. Those, those those happen all the time. What's uh what's this particular trailer about? It, it's a trailer for Marvel's The Marvels. Um, Captain Marvel, who you know was the super successful movie with that blonde chick in it, whose name I can't remember right now. Starring sure. as Captain Marvel. Brie Larson. Brie Larson, yes. And I want to defend her in a way saying when she was in Community, she was sweet and charming. The character was. I don't know about her, but she smiled and she had natural gestures and she actually didn't act like she was a slab of wood. I swear I am not lying. Yeah. So so she's in this trailer. But that's not all. Because I think I know what you're talking about. And then... Uh, it, it, this is just going to get awful. Because everything I say from now on is not going to make sense to you guys. There was a TV show on Disney Plus with uh, the Scarlet Witch... And they introduced a new character who got witchified and got witch powers. Um, and it was, oh, I think she might have been in the actual, or maybe she wasn't. I can't remember. I'm not trying to remember. Uh, anyways, her name's Monica Rambeau, and she got made into um, Miss Marvel. And she's got a bunch of same powers as Captain Marvel, only her blasts are purple. Oh, yay. So we have Captain Marvel and Miss Marvel. And then there's this awful character from the comics that everybody hates. Even all the people who pretend to love her hate her that they revamped for another Disney Plus series. And this is how bad that Disney Plus series. I have a perfect analogy so everyone will understand how bad this Disney Plus series was. It was so bad that I didn't watch it. Um, her name is... Kamala. Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel. Mm -hmm. I messed up one of the titles in there, but I don't care enough to go back and figure out which. So she's got a... So she's in there, too. They made a movie around all of these. Uh, around two unpopular characters and one unknown character. Yes. Cool. That's that's a, a recipe for success. The Marvels. 
<laughs> now, I had to tell you all that just so you would understand what this trailer is about. And I wish I didn't do that because my annoyance is at one specific thing. And it's not worth explaining that much. That's just painful to me. So the trailer, because Captain Marvel flies around the universe, they chose as music the Beastie Boys Intergalactic. Okay. So if you've ever heard the Beastie Boys, I'm just going to quote some lyrics. I'm not going to try to sing the song. But you know how it goes, intergalactic, planetary, planetary, intergalactic, yeah. intergalactic, Another dimension. so on and so forth. I mean, I, um, let me bring this song to mind. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm from the 90s. I could probably quote the whole song from memory, but let's not. Um, in the movie, and this may not surprise you looks awful and cheap okay. and I cannot overstate how awful it looks I, I'm, I'm not one of those people who is sick of superhero movies and I'm not one of those people who just say things look awful because it irks me a little bit. This movie, and you should take this just as magnificently, as gloriously, as hyperbolically as you can, looks so unbelievably, egregiously Impulsively um, terrible. It is a kind of terrible that Marvel Studios, with all the money that it has made, should never have made. They should have enough money to not have made a movie like this. They should be able to hire enough talent to not make a movie like this. They should be able to get enough special effects budget to not make a movie like this. They should be able to hire good enough writers to never make a movie like this. This movie is so inarguably bad. And that comes through every second of this trailer. And so what irks me is not that this movie is bad. What irks me is that this trailer 
is so bad that they are trying to make me hate intergalactic by the Beastie Boys. And that is making me angry. That's impossible. I am mad that they are trying to make me hate this song by sticking it on this revolting trailer. And I I had to go, after watching this trailer, I've listened to Intergalactic literally like three or four (laughs) times by itself, not all in a row, but just over the past two or three days, I've listened to it a few times just to cleanse my palate and and enjoy intergalactic i'm not making this up i'm telling the truth i literally have done this just to enjoy this song so i don't associate it with this trailer anymore (laughs) hey i know what you i know what you mean dw i was once a huge fan of the power by snap (laughs) And then they used it in one of those pull-up diaper commercials, and it just ruined it for me forever. (laughs) No, really? I'm glad I didn't see that, because I like the power. That's a great song. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. So that's my... (laughs) That's modern movies for you. Um, I mean, they used sabotage in the 2009 Star Trek, but that didn't ruin it for me. <laughs> it was the least Star Trek thing they could have done, but so was the rest yeah. of the movie. I hear you. Um, still, yeah. I've got to... Speaking of modern movies... Speaking of modern movies, I've got a new one that we need to talk about. and And I just assumed that you had seen this, but you haven't seen John Wick yet, have you? I, I have not. I am ashamed. Yeah, uh, it's it's one. I mean, John Wick, at least the first one's one of my favorite movies. And uh, and I thought you would rush out to see it, but stuff happens. Uh, so let me tell you, man. Do you remember just how bad John Wick 3 was in terms of, uh, you know, the nonsense story that doesn't resolve anything? Um. I do you remember? Do you remember I liked it, John Wick three? You remember I was the one who really liked John Wick three. Uh, but, well, that that would put you in the gross <laughs> minority. So, if you recall, at the end of John Wick three, or, or just before the end of John Wick three, he goes into the desert, and instead of instead of resolving anything, he you know gets his finger chopped off. His off finger. And, yeah. And and gets and gets back into the you know assassins crew, um, and then the end of the movie just leaves off with a big cliffhanger that was the same cliffhanger that was at the beginning of the movie. Oh no, it was worse than that. It was worse. Uh, he he, like a third of the uh, two thirds into the movie, he goes into the desert and cuts off his finger and gets back on the assassins crew, and then he goes out of the desert and almost immediately makes a decision to go against that and get thrown out of the assassin's crew against that whole desert thing was almost immediately nullified. He was thrown out. Um, So that was just pointless and stupid decision. Uh, But John John Wick three had the dogs and, and had uh, Halle Berry and, and just so many good action scenes. 
<laughs> well, I don't recall my review at the time, but after rewatching the first three films, I can easily say not only it was plain to everyone that John Wick 3 had the worst writing, uh, it also had the worst action scenes of them all, as, as enjoyable as they were. Um, but my point was, the first thing that John Wick does in John Wick 4, the writers might have might as well have just written a, a, an I'm sorry card and mailed it to everybody who bought a ticket. The first thing he does is he he chases down the elder in the desert and shoots him in the face. Uncer unceremoniously killing that off. Like, hey, we're sorry, guys. That was really stupid. We're, we're going to actually tell a story this time. So you can imagine... I'm ready. Like as as soon as that happened, I'm I'm getting settled in my seat and I'm going, "Okay, now I'm ready for a real John Wick movie." <laughs> See, I'm I'm not saying that I'm uh, mesmerized by action scenes to the point where it makes me blind to most everything in the story. That's not quite true, but it's close enough to the truth that uh you're willing to forgive a lot of uh, mistakes in the writing if the action scenes uh, keep you entertained. Yeah, I really am. <laughs> well, I was pretty forgiving. Uh, but even I recognized, uh, you know, by the end of John Wick 3, wow, none of that really meant anything. None of that made sense. So the, so the writers, first thing, they're, they're assuring all of you by letting, you know, by the way, we learned from our mistake. We're we're just gonna forget forget that ever happened. Minus the finger. Uh, John Wick still has no finger for the whole movie. Um, well, at least they didn't do something stupid with the finger, like you know, oh, here's a cybernetic replacement or whatever. <laughs> um, Seriously, Hollywood would do that. Hollywood would do that. Hollywood would do that. So the movie starts off with basically the same setup. All right. John Wick has a problem in that he's upset the high table, the shadowy unseen uh, group of elites who run the whole assassin underworld around the globe. So he's hunted by them and he has to figure out how to get out of it without just dying. And they introduce uh, a representative of the high table, um, one of the scars guards. Oh, um, he's the the skinny pale kid you see in the trailer. Yes. So so he's a he's the marquee. He's a you know he's a French scumbag, um, who is their representative. So spoiler, you don't actually see the high table. He's just their representative, so he's sort of the antagonist in this one. It's it's his his neck is on the chopping block. He needs to take down John Wick, or uh, they'll find a new marquee. And uh, uh, so great, here we've got the setup, and then they introduce more people in the underworld that know John Wick or know of John Wick. So we are introduced to. Um, another uh, continental hotel one of those safe havens in osaka old japanese friend and we are treated to a beautiful 
samurai ashigaru ninja versus assassin set piece battle um and we are introduced to a chinese uh, blind assassin who is a you know a friend of john wicks or a former friend of john wicks but wouldn't you know it when the high table comes calling and says you have to kill john wick or else, you know, we take away everything that you know and love. Well, you've got to do it. They introduce a new sort of unaligned assassin who's who's interested in in joining up, uh, oh. named Nobody, and he's got he's got his own dog, a Belgian Malinois, just like the ones they used in John Wick Three. And so for parts of the film, they follow they follow his perspective as he's shadowing John Wick. Um, and instead of taking his shots and attempting to kill John Wick, he's using his leverage to get them to raise the jackpot on John Wick. <laughs> well, <laughs> clearly whatever they've been offering isn't enough because everybody's dead. <laughs> yep. Um uh, so we go from we're, we're, we establish a character, we have a beautiful action set piece, and uh, John Wick is fighting for his life, fighting to figure out how am I going to get to the table? How am I going to get? He either needs to wipe them out or get released from the from his obligations. Uh, you know, just like at the beginning of John Wick three, and in this case, the Marquis provides him an opportunity to do that. And there's lots of details that go into it, but I think what's important to note is that all the all the ways in which they added to the world that didn't work in John Wick 2 and 3. You know, uh, having the guy literally explain the gold coins in uh, John Wick 3 was absolutely boneheaded. Everybody knew, everybody knew what they did just from context. Um, some of the other characters and concepts they introduced were kind of... I wish they didn't do that. But... Uh, none of that happened in this one. Everything they introduced was like a personal character interacting with John Wick. Uh, and none of it felt forced and none of it felt hokey. Some of the dialogue felt hokey, but they can't give up on uh, the the weird, pretentious dialogue. I want to uh, say about introducing new things to the world of John Wick, um, there's a series coming out on Peacock uh, in September of this year called The Continental. Uh, and it's set, uh, this is another trailer I saw this week, it's set in the 1970s of the John Wick universe. Um, yeah. So it's about the rise of the Continental, about the founding of the Continental. So, yeah. I, I mean, that's one of the things that made the first John Wick so fascinating was that sort of hidden underworld and and what that might look like. And the more they introduced the kind of, I think, the hokier it got. I'm going to watch it in the fall and review it in the fall, so we'll see what happens. But what's... But you need to, that's not what necessarily you care about, as you alluded to earlier. What do you want to know about John Wick 4? Were the action scenes any good? 
bro. They were mostly great. The my favorite was the was the Osaka fight. Um, you can imagine they brought back the um, bulletproof soldiers from John Wick Three, and so they're fight, squaring off against people with uh, blades and arrows and things uh, who might be able to pierce the armor. Um, plus, the characters involved were really interesting, and they also set up the John Wick sequel in that scene. Uh, the next uh, John Wick movie. The uh, the other fights I think were great, but a little less memorable because there's this amazing uh, action scene in a mansion in Paris where they're going room to room uh, with a, a shotgun loaded with dragon's breath rounds. And the effects are spectacular. Now, the way it was shot feels a little video gamey, so I I'm gonna dock it half a grade for that. But it was a lot of fun. Similarly, you get a wonderful homage to the Warriors in a massive street brawl on the streets of Paris around the Arc de Triomphe and uh, on the way to the uh, Sacre Coeur Cathedral, and it was a ton of fun to watch. Once again, I'm going to dock at points. By necessity, there's a ton of computer animated action in there, like cars and bodies flying everywhere. Um, it's not my cup of tea, but really cool to watch. Um, and then there's the final grueling um, fight, which I think was hinted at the trailer along a, you know, a tall set of steps a big grueling fight and that's on the way to the final showdown as it were absolutely fun to watch um what's bad about it it comes in a little long at three hours uh it's definitely bloated if if you hear people say it's bloated they're absolutely correct um and part of that is the lengthy action scenes uh, which aren't I don't think they're paced properly. There's not enough. Um, the stakes don't change. You know, it's all it's all about John Wick surviving to defeat the representative of the high table, and there's not enough uh, downtime. Like there's not enough of a breath in between them. But what's there is great, and probably the least memorable is uh, is one of the most fun which is a strange uh, assassin slash gangster in Germany. And, and it's got a really weird James Bond vibe where they're, you know, in a fight at a casino in a club. And what can I say? It's Scott Adkins, martial artist and stuntman in a fat suit. Uh, and once that fight gets going, you won't believe, <laughs> won't believe the stunts they do. Really cool stuff. Uh, so yeah, I think I think for its faults, uh, I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. Yeah, I, I'll echo. Uh, yeah, Luke West is echoing in the chat. They're well choreographed, but a couple were just way too long. Um, yeah, and I, I think I think my response my response to that is not only were they way too long, but I think it was the pacing. 
that really did it. Like we needed a little bit more of a break. We needed we needed the stakes to change. Um, I actually read one review, one reviewer who suggested that one or more of those scenes would have been better if they had completely changed the point of view to nobody. Uh, the uh, there's he's a you know the lone assassin who's been stalking John Wick throughout the whole movie. If they had done the entire scene from his perspective instead of switching you know back and forth to John Wick, that would have been more satisfying because then you could have taken a break from John Wick's struggles and sort of watched what was going on with him. I think that that might have been a cool risk to take. They they did that in three, didn't they? Uh, they followed um, Common. Uh, the rapper who was playing one of the uh, one of the assassins after John Wick, uh, they followed him for a bit, um, and we got to see things from his perspective. Yeah, in, in terms too. of there, there were there were a few scenes where they, you know, there there was a lot of spotlight time given to nobody uh, and his search, uh, sort of to help establish. It, it was also a way to establish the marquee and some of the the stakes and sort of explain why he's there. Um, but uh, the fight scenes specifically, like some of the action scenes, you know, in between the dragon's breath round uh, uh, fight and the Arc de Triumph fight, right? That, that one of those fights could have been done entirely from nobody's perspective. And he's on the phone the whole time trying to tell the Marquis, yeah, I, I could probably kill John Wick right now, but you're not paying me enough money, right? <laughs> uh, That's awesome. And that literally happens uh, more than once in the movie. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. They definitely... But let me... Let me say uh, there's one thing I forgot to add, which was the High Table's actual representative uh, played by Clancy Jones, the Kurgan from Highlander. Really? I love him. He's so good. He is such a good actor. Absolutely the right guy uh, for this job. He's just, you know, like he's missing his, he's missing a ring finger. Like he's got a scar in his face. You know, he's, he's an old man, but so and he, of course, can speak with that gravitas required to be, yeah, man, yeah, man I've been at this a long time. Uh, and, uh, and so he was the one that sort of set all the stakes for the, uh, the final showdown. And um, he gave the marquee his motivation. And uh, absolutely one of the coolest parts of the movie. And one of the things they added to the sort of to the lore to that background of the assassin's world in that final showdown, which I won't spoil anymore. Uh, the stuff they added felt natural. It felt uh, it felt organic, unlike the stuff they shoehorned in in two and in particularly three. Really enjoyable, and the ending was um, the ending was satisfying. Uh, and and I spoiled that you don't see the high table. I was expecting, um, you know, I was expecting John Wick to track them all down and you know kill, you know, all the all the elites and their families and everything like that. It wasn't like that, um, but the ending was very satisifying. Uh, it's yeah, it, what can I say? 
That's what I'm dreading about the Continental, the TV show, is that all the things they're going to put in there is just going to make the Continental lame. Oh, yeah. Prequels are almost always a mistake. Uh, I think, I mean, as far as as far as the movie goes, though, if if you see that running time and you're like, eh, all right, maybe you don't want to sit there for the slog. But if you were turned off by... If you were turned off by the mistakes made in John Wick 2 and 3, I can tell you that this one is going to be worth sitting through uh, because it's, is I found it really enjoyable. So that's a definite recommend? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a, it is a definite recommend. I think there's a lot of people who, as long as you know about the long running time and, and the action scenes, at the end, turn into a bit of a slog. If you can handle that, you're going to really enjoy the movie. Don't don't go in expecting uh, perfection. All right. Um, and you will love it. You will absolutely love it. <laughs> Me personally will. Yes. Yeah, you... You're going to dig it. Um, let's jump track for a little bit. Um, for those of you wanting to keep score, I just started Malazan Book of the Fallen number three, and I'm still loving the series, so hasn't uh, worn out its welcome yet. Got a lot of people asking me to do a lot of stuff with different books. Here, you should read this. Here, can you read that? And I'm literally, no. <laughs> I've got 700,000 words left. And uh, I only stopped for one book, and uh, that was Jeffro's. Um, what did he call it the other day? Uh, it wasn't a pamphlet. He called it something else. Uh, Primer. It was Revolutionary War publication. They use those words for the old time publications, but I can't remember the word. Anyways, that's the only thing I stopped for. Um, and I'm heading on to Malazan because I want to get to the end before I, uh, anything else gets on my plate. Um, and I am continuing to watch the third season of Picard and the third season of The Mandalorian. So when those get done, I'll do a review of those. And speaking of prequels or usually a bad idea i caught sight of it there's a show i love and it's supernatural specifically it's the real supernatural which is the first five seasons although i have seen all 15 um and the first five seasons are are a complete show in and of themselves and they're the best of supernatural and then after that you have individual sh uh, episodes here and there which are phenomenal but the series as a whole just took a nosedive and and wasn't great uh and individual seasons as storylines uh were all pretty abysmal um but those first five seasons taken as uh as a coherent story were were phenomenal so that's my opinion on the show i love the show love it um I spied on HBO 
they've got a new series called the Winchesters, which is a and and hold on to your seats here prequel series about the dad and mom. And uh, I'm rolling around in my head about whether or not I should watch it. Um, so that may get added to my viewing schedule at some point if that comes up, you know. Yes, we'll see. Um, but yeah, that's how things are going. Uh, all the other TV shows I was watching have ended, and I've given a review of them or even a two-sentence review of them. Um, still liking this season of Picard, mostly. Um, the season of the Mandalorian isn't quite as bad as everyone's saying, but I'll talk about that when it's done. And both of them are really close to being done. They should both be done in the next couple of weeks, uh, one one week and one the next, so we can split those off and talk about them. But speaking of How to Win at D&D, which is uh, Jeffro Johnson's, uh, you can't say pamphlet because if you say pamphlet, people imagine, you know, a tourist guide or something. But it's not a long book. Um, 34 pages of information that will knock your socks off about how to win at D&D and the origins of D&D. And uh, the failures of D&D and role-playing culture, D&D culture and role-playing culture in general over the last 40 years and why people are playing D&D wrong. So, having said that, and I know Jeff was in the, uh, in the chat, so I was going to say this harsh and cruel. But I'm going to be a little bit more uh, polite than that. Or it's, uh, it's possible Jeffro left because we were talking about movies and he hates movies. <laughs> um, or at least he hates modern movies. Um, the BROSR was founded as a sort of a play test of the uh, original AD&D rules. And 
they revealed a lot where AD&D culture had grown up since then, where they missed things that were written in the rules. And the Broasar found them and unearthed them and started doing them. And, and, and then kept going on. And today, uh, after playing in the Broasar for 14 months, I want to talk about some things that the Broasar has done that haven't worked quite. One-to-one um, -one time works very well. Um, all the other things that were actually in the rules work well. But like the Broasar said, there are things that were transmitted in the culture that were not handed down in AD&D. And I think that a lot of that was the was not in the rules and is in the assumptions of game mastering um and a lot of that i'm not going to be talking about um but some of it i will so i'm just going to dive in because we only have like 20 minutes left so here are three misses of the OSR. And in, in and among all these hits, which are detailed in, you know, how to win at D&D, here are three misses of the OSR. The first one, uh, an ongoing bronze steam. The theory behind this one was that Role-playing first came out of a game called Bronstein. Um, and long story short, a campaign world is implicitly uh, organized kind of like an Adventure Conqueror King system game where you have adventurers and then you have people fighting because they've amassed armies. And then you have, uh, and these are the same characters that pass through these phases. And then you have characters who have domains who are running the domain game and trying to expand their domains and, and fighting each other. Only this was all implicit in the rules. You didn't need, you know, you didn't need them set out where you passed from one level to another. Um, so what the OSR did at the beginning, what the BROSR, excuse me, what the BROSR did at the beginning was to set up a bunch of NPCs who were in charge of factions on the board. And by the board, I mean the map, the campaign map of, a, of an area. And then they had people volunteer to run them. And that formed kind of the large 
scale political machinations of the campaign world. And this was very exciting. And, you know, people were, and, and then they had a, a whole month. And this was like six months into the campaign. They had a whole month um, of uh, a competition where, um, and don't quote me on this, but I think it was like 16 players played out a war game of their domains and factions. And that set up everything else going forward. And they continued to, you know, kind of play that through. Um, the problem was, or is, that in the months since then, in the year In the basically nearing two years now, we're we're a couple months shy of two years now. Almost every domain leader, except one, effectively, has dropped out. Um. The only time this has worked. That is, having outside players play NPCs is in special events that they have declared, such as uh, um, during the Orc event. Uh, and you know these names, so shout them out when I, when I mention them. Mm, Decembork. Decembork. And... Uh, during the Halloween, uh, September and Halloween event. Mm, Brovenloft. Brovenloft. Both of those, uh, I wasn't involved in December because um, it didn't have much inner uh, action with the players. Um, but I was involved on the player's side as a game master in uh, Brovenloft. Um, yeah, the month-long events were very uh, successful. There, there's still some bugs that need to be worked out there if we're going to involve players, but a lot of that was just great. Um, and then that tied in with some events going on in, uh, I think, B-Dub's campaign. Um, and so there was just a lot of great stuff. But... It didn't work with players who are NPCs over the long term. They just seem to lose interest. So my preliminary opinion right now is that it has to be organically grown as part of the game, that that kind of interaction between domains AD&D reflects kind of a post-apocalyptic setting where there are very few human settlements scattered across kind of a large area. And the reason why your leaders are setting up domains is because you're on the wilderness and you're beating back 
monsters and stuff and establishing human settlements. You're literally colonizing a land that used to have human civilization in it, but it is gone for whatever reason. And so you're going out and finding ruins where there used to be towns or there used to be keeps, uh, used to be castles, used to be, you know, entire cities. And you're restoring civilization to this wilderness. And you're clearing out the monsters and setting up patrols to keep them from overwhelming these new citizens, these new farmers and, and merchants and uh, uh, tradesmen who are coming out and setting them up there. So there really aren't a lot of big political figures who are there before you guys get there. That's kind of the spirit of the game. And you go out there and found these places. And then because you've organically established them and grow them as player characters, you have a vested interest in protecting them. In seeing that uh, your, uh, your area that you've invested so much time and treasure in isn't overrun by either monsters or fellow PCs or, or NPCs. Um, and your investment in that is far, far greater than someone who just picks it up as an NPC. Um, so, uh, everybody else lost interest. Life overwhelmed them. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they had bad I'm not calling them bad people. I'm not saying they did anything wrong. Uh, life overwhelmed them. They missed a couple of uh, weekly sessions no, and natural. never came back. Just natural. Whereas if, if all the domains had grown up organically over the last two years from people who were playing at the table, um, they would be invested enough to continue playing. Um. So yeah, I think it I think it would have been I think this is one of the rare misses of, of the Broessar, and I think it may have been better to have let that grow organically at the table from characters who had worked their way up and started planting that. Um so it really only worked with one player. Um and the one player, from what I remember at the table, was playing that character as an adventurer. I don't know that he grew up from first level, but that character at least was adventuring for a while. 
Um, so, uh, did he? I, I, I can't recall. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, he he early on in the campaign, he was involved with uh, jumping out of a Thark um, airship and super elbow slamming the sorceress. This is long before I uh, joined. Um, so we're talking about Macho Mandolf, of course. Um, so um, so I'm talking about the second failure here because this one is easy and we disagree on it so we can talk about it for a little bit. Um, Four-hour sessions. This is not a failure necessarily of the BRO-SR as a whole. I just think four-hour sessions are too short, especially on uh, voice chat, which I'm really hating. And I think voice chat I said I wasn't going to talk about anything personal, but I think voice chat is is the core of a lot of problems that I've personally had because uh, playing playing let's we can just say playing D and D online is not a good experience. It's no. just not. No matter what no matter what system you're doing, just the nature of online meetings online voice chat playing DD online is not good and i think that's that's the intersection where we actually agree i don't think a four-hour session is too short i've yet to see a proper four-hour session and uh it's true that in order to in order to get the amount of the, the quality of play you want out of a four hour session, because that's what we're talking about. The four hours isn't enough to accomplish enough interesting decisions and interesting actions for it to be a satisfying session game session. I think that's bunk if you're playing in person. And I think the uh, playing online stretches that out four four hours or realistically three to three and a half hour sessions not over voice you're not going to get much done yeah but i think it's the communications system that's yeah. that's uh that's the real i think that's the real culprit here that's that's my point uh but i'm in the minority you know a lot of people say oh you know like conventions take gaming conventions why are convention slots only four hours that's not long enough we want to play five six seven hours right i have always felt convention slots to be too slow for a real game too too short i mean for a real game 
I, I think a real game session needs between five and six hours to really breathe. Well, that's a catch-22. Is it a catch-22? I don't think that's the right idiom. Where if you have an in-person game with uh, players, most of whom or all of whom are established in the game, you know, this isn't a bunch of first uh, people getting together for the first time like a convention game. I think you can play a ton in three to four hours. Ironically, if you give that much time for a group of people meeting at a convention or those same group of players pl trying to play together online where, you know, effectively only one person can speak at a time and there's lots of crosstalk and, you know, people not hearing things. That's that slot of time, which should be enough for that group of players, no longer is. So it's kind of ironic because if if you're if you're playing in person, uh, you only need the four hours. But yeah, of course, you're hanging out with your buddies. You you have all the time in the world. You can hang out at your kitchen table or the game store for four, five, six, eight hours. It's a shame. I, I am really itching to do some in-person role-playing. <laughs> yeah, it's just, been a while. This radio communication is just beginning to bug me. Um, you get enough of it every other week on the Geek Gab. Yeah. <laughs> so, the last one... Um, this is a GM culture thing. And I think it's a GM culture thing that because there are some things that are explicit in the rules and GM culture is not explicit in the rules, um, Yep. We broke the war pig. There are balancing your game is not automatically achieved. by just following the rules specifically or exactingly. And game masters are supposed to do more in their game than just follow the rules. I'm not saying add house rules. And I'm not saying rewrite the rules. And I'm not saying everything's fun. Everything's okay if it's fun. I'm saying game masters 
are in point of fact supposed to take an active hand in their game. Just even if you've got this Bronstein going on with NPCs, with, with patrons running NPCs, GMs are supposed to take an active hand in things, in molding their game world to keep things lively. And maybe it's not a, you know, new faction. Maybe it's when things have gotten stale and everybody's turtled up and nobody's doing anything interesting, you throw something chaotic into the mix to get people moving again. I'm just saying that random rules themselves, random and turning things over to patrons or having all the domains being run by PCs isn't the end-all and be-all of game mastery. You should not be passive as a GM. GMs were never meant to be passive. Um, and your active GMing is not restricted just to the party and playing out what you randomly rolled for the dungeon. If you're making an Appendix A dungeon, yes, you have to, you know, be the judge, be the referee for the traps that the party runs across, or for the monsters that the party runs across. And I really, really wonder sometimes if they're bothering with reaction roles. I really, really wonder that. I hope they are applying reaction roles and using people's charisma for those reaction roles, but I've never once seen a reaction role go the party's way. It's always been straight to combat. Yeah, I can, uh, I can, I can recall one notable exception, but I think I know what you mean. Oh yeah, the the owl burrow owls. Uh, Is that what you're talking about? No, the the dark dwarf who thinks he's a cold. Okay. Sorry for maligning the various DMs of the uh, Trilopolis campaign. I'll take it back. But there is more to DM than just kind of... And I have not played with anyone outside the Trilopolis GMs. So if, if this does not describe... There's like 17 Bro-SR campaigns right now. 17, and there's probably more. 
because we're into third generation BroSR campaigns now. We're into people who, you know, played in the first stages of the BroSR and went off and started their own campaign. And then there are people who played in that campaign, in those campaigns, like B-Dub's campaign and others, who have gone off from there and started their own campaign. So that's third generation, right? Um, so yeah, we're in the third generation. For all I know, there may be fourth generation campaigns right now. Um, and those fourth generation DMs desperately need uh, a guidebook on what's in there that isn't easily read in the uh, AD&D Game Master's Guide. Um, but random rules are not the end and playing out random rules is not the beginning or end of, of GM wisdom. You, you have an active part to play in running your game world. And uh, yeah, and, and the best example I can think of this is where the cleric came from. There was a vampire player character who was out of control. Now, vampire player characters would never be allowed in a D&D, but this was D&D, which had a original D&D, like white box D&D, which had a completely different setup. Um, and uh, they created the cleric because he needed a counter. If someone, by following the rules legitimately, has found a complete exploit, and has destroyed the game balance of the game, it's not wrong to slow them down to make the game challenging for them again. I can't help but agree. I I think the in when we're talking about advanced dungeons and dragons in particular, I think uh, Gygax presents a game where the dungeon master is obligated to uh, maintain the spirit of the game and the the feel of his world. Um, Gygax uses the word milieu. 
That's it's it's the game master's obligation. So I I I can't disagree with you at all. I'm I'm not sure where to I'm not sure where to place it though because what is like impartial referees are really important part of um, that kind of play, like you mentioned, traps and monsters and things. Um, but I'm not clear on I'm not clear on how that's a per- failure of the Broasar in particular. Is is there some principle or property that that hasn't shaken out? Well, I, I think in in the focus on testing out the rules and sticking. to the rules, they have missed the sense of one of the rules where Gygax says it's the spirit of the rules that are important. They have missed the fact that as game masters, they also need to do some things outside the rules. That there Mm -hmm. is some duties not explicitly there are a lot of duties that you are told to do that themselves are not directly itemized in the rules because you uh, it, it's going to vary from campaign to campaign. Gary Gygus is saying, look, there are other things that if I could have told you, I would have told you, but they're going to vary so much from campaign to campaign. Just know this is AD&D. I've told you what it must be like through all these rules. And now it's up to you to keep your AD&D game running like AD&D. Don't let, no, don't let players stomp all over your game. That's not AD&D. Uh, even if what they're doing may technically be in the rules, they're not supposed to stomp all over your game. And that's okay. You don't have to let that happen. Um, always keep up the challenge in the game. I know that sounds like number one, and maybe it is. Um, you know, whether that's new foes who are coming to find them or whatever. Um, I'm trying to phrase this in such a way that it makes sense. Uh, and I may not have thought about it long enough to do that perfectly. Oh, yeah. What you're saying makes perfect sense. I'm not clear on, other than the focus on playing rules as written, I'm not clear on the on how the Broasar or the, the games or their theory or whatever is contra that i'm not certain i don't see the contradiction but i see i see i agree with what you say i think you're 100 right and i think we've seen examples of that but i think we've seen examples of that in other games besides the bro sr yeah You don't have to change rules to do your job as a GM. You don't have to, you know, rewrite rules to do your job as a GM. You should just, it is vitally important that in addition to rules as written, you do a whole bunch of stuff um, 
that the OSR kind of disdains, but they shouldn't. Like the dirty, dirty job of running an NPC organization. Yes, you really should run NPCs and an NPC organization. The question is like, why don't we have any urban adventures ever? And I mean full-blown urban adventures, not dungeon crawling in a city. Um, with NPCs and NPC organizations and schemes and interactions like that. I mean, that's a third leg of Gygax's triad of adventuring milieus. There's the wilderness, there's the dungeon, and then there's urban adventures. Um, and I'm just talking about the Troopolis campaign here. I cannot vouch for any other Bro-SR campaign. Um, we don't do that because that involves a lot more than just random dice rolling. It involves a lot more than just Appendix A. And so... All of that is on judgment calls of DMs, and it's on DMs to portray the NPCs with, you know, personalities and, and maybe silly voices, and you have to keep track of social interactions, and all of that stuff, a lot of the Broissar has kind of disdained. And that's what I mean. That's all beyond the rules, but that's clearly intended in the rules. Otherwise, Gygax wouldn't have listed urban adventures as being so important. Um, so, yeah. Well, uh, well said. We got, uh, there are a couple of things of, of all the great stuff we've witnessed. There are a couple of misses, and uh, and I hope uh, I hope they're listening uh, because I think uh, and I think there are I think there's lots of conversations amongst the bros are about some of these things. Um, I'm if the bro SR wants to play test AD and rules, they need to run urban adventures. Okay. Hey, D-Dubs. I think we're about out of time today. Does that cover everything that you had on your list? Yes, that's why I said that is one short sentence. <laughs> well, uh, absolutely fascinating. I love talking about RPGs with you. Um, and I'm glad we got a proper review of John Wick. I hope you see it. You're going to love it. Um, uh, and I had a good, I had a good day and a good show. I hope uh, everybody hanging out in the chat enjoyed, and everybody listening later uh, loves what we have to say. But uh, I am out for this week. And special note: I meant to plug this earlier. Next weekend, I'm out. It will be the annual Bone Bat Comedy of Horrors Film Festival. If you're in the Seattle area, go check it out. They're going to be in Seattle at the Egyptian. Uh, so I'll I'll be there next week, next Saturday. And if uh, and I'll tell you about all the good stuff 
next time we get together and chat. So that's um, that's where I'm at this week. Also, uh, Kursova put the word out that Misha Burnett has got a new book coming out in May called Small Worlds, I believe. Uh, and uh, if the schedule jumpy, uh, schedule juggling hits right, we may be able to get Misha on the show himself. So, cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, is it my time? It is time. Take us away. All right. Uh, we want to thank everybody who listened live to the show and participated in the chat. And we want to thank everyone who will listen later. Uh, you can get us uh, on youtube.com slash geekgab. Once again, youtube.com slash geekgab. And if uh, you do wander by YouTube, do us a favor and subscribe and click the little bell. You will get announcements when we go live. So, uh, you uh, can jump in and listen with everybody else. Uh, or you can get us on the iTunes store, soundcloud.com, or the Google Play store. So you can download us on the device of your choice or on the web. Listen on the web or to your computer. We have been Geek Gab for Saturday, April 15th, 2023. We're signing off for today, but don't you worry, don't you fret, we will be back.